So this evening I would like to offer some reflections on the practice we've been engaged in and on the theme of the, the weekend. The essential practice that we've been engaged in is the practice of being present. A rather, it seems, straightforward activity, and yet one with a remarkable range of possible uh, outcomes, it seems. A number of different ways that we can be touched by or affected by the process of simply seeking to be present, simply seeking to be mindful, to be aware, to be awake, we could say. It's not easy, as you've probably noticed. It's not easy to be present, to experience the condition of our mind our heart and our body. And for those of you who are here for the first time, and uh, perhaps equally for those of you who have been here before, there can at times arise the sense of a question as to whether this is possible for us, whether we can actually do this. Although it seems being present is uh, simple enough, In the journey through a day of meditation or through an extended period of one's life where one seeks to engage in it, there are times where we might wonder, is this possible for me? And there's a kind of familiar experience that uh, some of you may relate to that sometimes happens on retreat. When we're aware of how our mind goes here and there, when we feel the the waves of tiredness or restlessness or confusion or agitation that sometimes seem to invade or inhabit our consciousness and that feel the very opposite of that which we are intending for or inclining towards, which may be something we conceive of as peace or calm or clarity, possibly even hope for some uh, enjoyment or bliss, and yet actually it's kind of dull, it's kind of drab, it's kind of confusing, it's not particularly consistent or predictable or amenable to our desires and our wishes. And sometimes what happens when we're doing this is we start to get the feeling that this isn't for me, I don't think I can do it. And someone, and people regularly report this uh, We'll be sitting in meditation in the room full of people, just as you all are. And at some point, open their eyes and look around. And it seems that everybody else is sitting there rather calm, rather quiet, rather serene, it seems. And one might even start to conceive and imagine, well, gosh, they all seem to be doing really well. They're all deep in meditation. They're all about to have some, or are already having some, remarkable meditative experience. And it's like we're sitting here in the room and looking around and there's 55 Buddhas to be and one overcooked vegetable sort of slumped on a cushion. And it feels like that can be our truth. What's interesting in this particular situation, this scenario, is that often what happens is that the person who's looking around thinking, oh, everybody else seems to be able to do it, I can't, at some point decides it's hopeless, gives up, closes their eyes, sits back in the normal position, it seems, and the person next to them just happens to open their eyes, look around and say, wow, they're really calm. They look really serene. Something must be really happening there. And we're so easily fooled by our minds we so easily make a conclusion about who and what we are, 
or what's possible for us based on an interpretation of experience which may not be the whole picture. So in meditation we're learning to slow down. We're learning to take things a little bit less quickly in order to begin to see more what is actually going on. This capacity to be present, to be mindful, to be meditatively aware of our experience, which is something that doesn't involve simply observing it from a distance. It's not about somehow withdrawing from it and looking at it, safely removed. It's about actually being up close with it, in touch with it, experiencing it directly. This capacity is something that develops if we support it. And it's easy to feel at times like we somehow have to push ourselves or drive ourselves to be present. And yet that doesn't really seem to work. Or at times we might give up, collapse, feel like it's hopeless. And these tendencies are very common tendencies of the mind, of how we relate to things. We either push ourselves, we're really hard on ourselves, or we give up, we collapse. We lose our sense of possibility. And we really ask to find a balance, to have a steady application of our intention to be here. And if we do this, we'll actually see that something starts to happen. It's kind of like as if we were training a puppy. And this is, I find, a rather lovely metaphor. What, what we need to do in order to train a puppy to live in a human world, it needs to know that it should be able to follow behind its owner so as not to get into trouble. And we might want to teach it to heal. It's the, the standard comment or the training word that's used, heal, which means follow, stay with me. Now if we have a little puppy and we say to it, heal, what's it going to do? First time it's heard us, it probably doesn't speak our language. It probably wanders off. It doesn't really know what's going on. It wants to go smell some flowers or chase a butterfly, decorate a tree. Many things that puppies like to do. And how do we respond to that? If we're training a puppy and we know something about puppies, we'd recognise it's probably a good idea to just bring it back and say, heal, again. And it runs off again. Now if we get upset with the fact that it's not listening to us and decide it's a stupid dog, it's a hopeless dog, we think we need to yell at it or perhaps teach it a good lesson with a stick, that's really not going to work, is it? In fact, if we relate like that to a puppy, and sometimes we can see we relate like that to our own minds and the way we drive or are harsh with ourselves. With the puppy, it'll very soon decide that actually this isn't a very nice place to hang around don't think I want to be too close to that character. They're always yelling and screaming. So it disappears off at every opportunity. Mind is like that. If we react, if we attack ourselves or, or condemn ourselves for the fact that the mind is distracted or busy or reactive, this doesn't really help the process. And yet if we see what it does again and again, what it does, how it moves away, how it goes off how it becomes entangled. And each time, just bring it back. Just bring it back. Through patience and kindness. In this way, the puppy would actually come to learn, oh, it's actually quite nice to hang out with this person. I think I might hang around, see what happens. And likewise, the mind, in a similar way, it starts to feel more at home in being present. If we keep bringing it back, if we keep coming back. Patience and gentleness in this process, together with some real steadiness and perseverance. Like if we say to the puppy once or twice, come back, and it runs away, and we think, oh, well, <laughs> it's a hopeless case, I'll just let it run away. Then, of course, it's going to turn out to be a wild dog. It's probably not going to have a happy life if it has to live in a human society. So to our minds. If we just allow them to run free, we see how much trouble they get into how painful it is for our minds to be entangled in the way they so often are. And yet there's this remarkable thing that happens. It's very easy to take it for granted, actually, but this remarkable thing happens time and time again to all of us. What happens is that we notice, 
my mind is there and it's been gone for this long or whatever we notice it's here it's like this we're thinking we're feeling we're telling a story in our mind but that moment of noticing how does that happen I find this an interesting question to contemplate. How does it happen that we notice that we come back? Because by definition, the, the me who was trying to be mindful wasn't there in the previous moment. That intention was completely absent, it seemed. That remembering was absent. And then suddenly, it's as though the light comes on and we recognize, ah, I'm here. Ah, that's right. Practicing meditation. There's a way in which out of that intention, but in a way by itself, we come back. It just happens. And it's something actually kind of remarkable. Something quite mysterious actually. What is that quality of our life that comes back on? that was absent. Qualitatively, we can know that it's very different. That the experience of being present and mindful is very different than being lost in unconscious thinking when we don't actually know where we are. But we somehow take the stories in our mind to be what is true. It's like being lost in a dream. Anything can happen. It's not a place we'd necessarily want to live our life. And yet somehow we seem to fall into it again and again. And yet, as a training, as a practice, as something we can develop, we actually discover this capacity to wake up, to reawaken again and again into the truth of our experience in which we know where we are and what's happening. And that quality is something which is both familiar and at the same time fresh. I wonder if you've noticed that in your meditation. It may have just been a few moments where it occurred, or rare occasions, all too rare sometimes it feels, perhaps at the beginning of a retreat. Not that we're at the beginning of this particular retreat anymore. There's this quality when we're mindful, when we're really present, that It's very simple and yet kind of remarkable in its freshness, in its aliveness. That speaks to us. When there's a moment of calmness or steadiness, and maybe it's just a few moments, or maybe it's some longer period of that, when we actually feel what it is to be present, there's something in that that calls to us, that calls I would say to a deeper part of us that recognizes it, that knows it as a place that we can actually rest, that we can come to find ourselves at home in when so much of our life it seems we feel not at home. We feel we're looking for a place to be at rest. We're looking for some circumstances that will allow us to be at rest. If things were different than they were, then it would be okay. Then I could rest. But those circumstances are not so frequently available. And when we find them, and we have the good fortune to find the circumstances we wish for, we long for, all too often they last not so long at all. So, the first step in the meditative journey is this process of establishing ourselves in being present, in exploring what is the quality of this experience or this mode of being in which we are aware as the defining or the specific characteristic of this mode in which we are aware that we're here we know where we are. Because this is perhaps 
one of the most important things we'll ever develop or cultivate in our lives. For all the many important and significant endeavours that we might undertake, and there are many, developing this capacity to be present can and will serve our life immensely. And yet, as I said, it's not easy, not just because the mind seems rather busy, reactive and quick to move into the past and into the future, into, it seems, almost any place but right here. It's also difficult because what we encounter when we're here, when we start to open into and feel our experience, is that this life that we're in contact with is actually something quite challenging, something quite painful at times, something quite difficult and even confusing or scary. That the very nature of life has within it experiences which we would rather just were not there and yet cannot be removed from it. This is something which the Buddha suggested we would be wise to contemplate and to reflect upon. It's like a lot of the tendency of the mind to get away from where we are is because we're not actually sure in our hearts we want to be here. And we really need to look at that reality. Because it suggests that there's going to be somewhere better or somewhere else. And yet the reality of life is that it's like this. It's the way your life is. Life isn't some different way and just accidentally happened to you wrong. You know, we have this idea, no, no, it's supposed to be like that, isn't it? It's not supposed to be like this. Surely not. But look around you. Everybody else's life is much the same. That's saying something to us. And the Buddha spoke of this. He said, acknowledge it, look at it, recognize it. Life has in it these experiences, these aspects that are difficult. He spoke of the body, the heart and the mind being subject to the difficult and challenging. He said our bodies, and this is obvious, are subject to being born. That's how we got here. We were born, squeezed out through a narrow chamber or plucked out into the world, soft and tender and vulnerable. And having to face all these conditions of life, which our body, as it goes through, through birth, growing, ultimately aging, experiencing sickness and eventually death. This, all human bodies, all bodies go through. All beings have this experience. And it's not easy. It's just not easy to experience this. Our hearts, this capacity, we can call it our heart, this capacity we have to feel, the sense that is affected, that aspect of our being that is affected by life, is subject to all kinds of difficult and tender feelings at times. And the Buddha spoke of sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair as difficult experiences we encounter in life. A lot of them have to do with the experience of birth, aging, sickness and death in our own body or with regard to others. We cannot escape being impacted in our life, in our hearts. This is the way life is. And again, we sometimes think, or we sometimes hear, you know, if you'd got it right, if you did it properly, then you wouldn't have any painful experience. Then you'd just feel happy all the time. We'd like to think that. It gives us hope. But the way I see it, it's not like that. And one way of recognizing or reflecting on that I find useful is to Consider the situation of what happens if we love something or someone in our lives. If we love something or someone in our lives, at some point we'll be parted from them. Through accident, through intention, through death, one way or another, 
It will happen. And this will be painful. This will, having loved something, when we're separated from it, it's painful. And we can't avoid that if we love something. It will happen. The only way we could avoid that happening is to not love something or someone in our life. If we live our life without loving something or someone, that will be painful. And I think we know that. So the way I see it is there's kind of no way out of this. Our hearts are going to be touched by this. And we need to acknowledge this, recognize this. Of course, that's not all our hearts will be touched with in life. Of course, there are many sweet and beautiful qualities that touch our hearts. Joy and delight. Happiness and peace can also be there in our being. But not exclusively so, it seems. And our minds. Our minds are subject. The Buddha spoke of this. Subject to being associated with what we don't like, being separated from what we do like, and not getting what we want. That one's tough, isn't it? Not getting what we want. Did anyone have something today that they wanted and didn't get? They wanted the bell to ring earlier to finish the sitting. Wanted, I don't know, a certain thing to be there for the meal, and it wasn't. So many different things. Wanted a certain experience to happen in meditation, and it didn't. Or it did happen, and wanted it to stay, and it didn't stay long enough. That experience, the Buddha invited us to consider, to contemplate. Because what happens if we don't understand that life includes this, is that we tend to think somehow, that we have to and need to separate ourselves or protect ourselves from experiencing the difficult. And what we tend to do is close down our experience. Rather than actually opening to our life, we actually shrink away from it. We pull away from it. And we can feel this sometimes as we enter into practice, as we enter into our experience, into our body. We can actually feel a certain tightness that physically shows up as a contracting, as a hardening. And that hardening and contracting has a deadening effect. So we we stop feeling. We're not as sensitive as we used to be. It's like what was once the tender skin of a baby slowly becomes leathery and sort of hard. Of course, probably not too leathery, but at some level, physically, the process of ageing replicates what we do inside, or, or shows it. The, it's more the inner process replicates it. But while that outer process of kind of the body slowly losing its fluidity, its elasticity, is almost inevitable to a certain degree, a large amount of how we tighten or become hardened inside is not necessary. And it comes out of this view this belief that somehow this should not be. And so, in acknowledging that there is suffering, that there is pain in life, what we're actually asked to do is to meet it. To not shy away from it, because to do so is to shy away from our life and from our aliveness. But to actually come into contact with it, to feel into it. When we bring our attention back to the breath, when we come into a contact with our body, and as some of you reported, places of tightness or discomfort or tenderness, to actually just feel that. It's like we're bringing moisture. We're bringing life back into the places that we may have abandoned. And the meditative process is one whereby we we learn to re-inhabit our life. To re-inhabit what it means to be alive. Which is to be a tender, sensitive human being who can be impinged upon by so many things. 
We're so, we're so sensitive as human creatures. And sometimes people report how walking meditation is kind of boring. I don't know if you've ever had it like that today or at any time. You know, walking meditation, there's nothing really going on. I often suggest to people, if that's your experience, take your shoes off and go outside. Walk around in the world that hasn't been manufactured for our comfort. Because if you do that, and I mean, a lawn has been manufactured for our comfort. There's actually not much out there that hasn't been. If you're walking even on a lawn, and even more so if you're in a field or some relatively wild place, without any shoes on, do you think walking meditation is going to be boring? Do you think you're going to have any difficulty paying attention to what happens as you put your foot on the ground? I don't. Because actually you're going to really need to know what's going on down there. Because it's going to be bumpy or it might be spiky or it might be slippery or there might be some creature sort of scurrying around down there. It's like what we create for ourselves in the effort to maintain a semblance of comfort. And, you know, putting shoes on our feet, certainly it protects us from discomfort, from pain, and sometimes from injury, so it's appropriate. It has its place. I'm not knocking footwear. I have, you know, plenty of pairs myself. Um, but the, what happens is we, in protecting ourselves, what we also sometimes do is cut ourselves mm-hmm. off. So there is a place for protection. But here, where it's relatively safe, and where the lawn is, you know, again, I would say pretty safe place to walk, um, if you take your shoes off, what you notice is the sensitivity of the human foot. And what that's like. Sometimes it's exquisitely sweet, I find, to have a blade of grass rubbing past the instep of my foot as I place it down. And sometimes, of course, it's really painful when the ball of the big toe lands on a sharpened, upturned rock. And sometimes it's really scary because there's some bees buzzing around the flowers and I really don't want them to be under my foot. Both out of concern for them and, of course, (laughs) probably much more out of concern for me. And we notice what that's like. There's a certain aliveness in that. If we just take a step unprotected and enter into something a little bit more like the natural condition of life, something a little wilder than the relatively tame and kind of mundane experience of, say, walking on a carpet or a wooden floor. Of course, walking on a carpet or a wooden floor can be fine too, but it's different. It's different. So as a suggestion, if you feel like bringing a little more aliveness into the practice. You could try that and see what happens. Because as we allow ourselves to take a little bit of a risk and feel more deeply our life, and that's really what you're being asked to do here, Take a risk of feeling your life more deeply. Not staying up here thinking about it and not really experiencing it. But actually coming into, coming into contact again and again, coming into contact with our life. What what actually starts to happen is that although it can be tender and painful sometimes, poignant and, and hard to bear, at the same time as that there's a certain way in which we relax as our heart opens and we can recognize that we actually have the capacity to receive our life. Perhaps when we were really young, as infants or children, not yet having matured in our adult and human capacity, we need to cut off or withdraw in order to protect ourselves. And perhaps there are still areas within us that are vulnerable to the degree that we still need to protect them some. But understanding that we actually have the capacity to meet our life, to open to our life, we can begin the journey of seeing how far and how fully we can open to this. Allow ourselves to touch and be touched by experience. Because that touching and being touched begins to open us up begins to open us from a kind of contracted 
sort of frightened and very narrow way of experiencing life into something that is broader, into something that is more expansive, and that has within it a spaciousness that we deeply yearn for. And so this quality of being present and this capacity of opening, these two together are what allow us to begin to really explore. If we're not present, well, you know, we're just a bunch of reactions going on. That's all that's going on mostly, is we're reacting. And reacting, it's like there's nothing alive in reaction. It's the same thing happening again. When we react, we're mostly reacting to our history rather than our actual experience. When we're present, we have the opportunity to find a skillful response. And that quality of being present, as I said, includes this capacity to open too. Because if we can't open to our experience, if we're not willing to feel it, we can't really be there with us. And as we do so, there's not just an increasing sense of possibility, of spaciousness, but there's also a way in which the natural intelligence of our life begins to show itself as a as a deepening clarity that simply recognises what's happening. It's not that we need to figure it out, but that we maybe need to be interested in understanding our life, understanding what it means to be alive at all. The Buddha once said, Fools seek to pursue experience. The wise seek to understand it. And this statement really captures the essential shift in life where it transforms from being a worldly life a materialistic life to a spiritual life where we're seeking to control or manipulate to pursue experience or to avoid experience this is the activity of what the Buddha referred to as fools and in this foolishness is really evidence of blindness I would say not of intrinsic stupidity but just blindness. And the wise, rather than seeking to pursue experience, the wise seek to understand it. It's important to acknowledge or to recognize from that. It doesn't mean the wise have already understood it. And they're sitting there being, I'm very wise, I know the way it is. No, there's wisdom in that movement to understand. The wisdom that has the humility to recognize we don't already know all there is to know here that has the humility and the interest to begin as a beginner, to be as though we were, again, young children, innocent and curious. To actually engage with our lives, to engage with aliveness. What is this that we encounter when we're present, when we're open? What do we encounter? What actually happens Although for each one of you it's very particular. And no two will have exactly the same experience, I imagine. At the same time what happens is universal. Because what we actually come into contact with is this flowing, moving, changing experience. We see that there is the breath coming and going. Or the sensation of the foot touching the ground as we walk in meditation or as we move around the building. Or whatever else it might be that seems to be in the foreground for one moment. But then in the next moment, it can be a sound, it can be a thought, it can be a feeling, it can be an image. And we see these experiences unfolding. Whatever's happening to us It's not in our control. We've noticed already we can't control our experience or else you'd have probably decided to sit down and have a really calm, peaceful, blissful, mindful, meditative day. Maybe someone decided to do that and succeeded in the morning, from this morning to now. But probably no one decided, I think what I'll have is a day that's going to be full of sort of confusion and drowsiness with occasional moments of mindfulness punctuated by despair that they don't last too long and 
you know, all of that. We didn't decide to make that happen, and yet it happened. It happened, and there's a certain process in which we see how many different experiences are coming together, how everything is kind of butting up against and bouncing off everything else. One experience arises, it gives rise to a thought, then a memory occurs, you know, we hear a sound. It's just an experience, a sound, and we think, oh, it's a bird. Oh, okay, it's a bird. And then in the next moment we're thinking, oh, I remember hearing a bird like that. We're in the past. We're remembering walking down a lane with our teenage sweetheart. We're filled with this warm, tender feeling of how delightful that was. And then a moment later we remember how it actually all finished up and we're filled with gloom and despair. And and it's like one thing just drops us into an experience and then that drops us into another. And then there's a noise somewhere else and we remember, oh, oh, wow, I was lost. And maybe in that moment we think, oh, how fortunate. I'm backed. And the feeling of well-being. Or we think, oh no, I blew it. I was spaced out again and we feel miserable. It's like these experiences just keep bouncing into each other, affected by so many things. Affected by so many things. And if we attempt to control them all, if we attempt to fix them, to get them to be in a certain way, we struggle with them. We find ourselves in conflict with the way things are. And we get tighter, we get rigid, we collapse. And either of those conditions, where we kind of get tight because we're struggling so hard to control things, or we realize it's hopeless, I can't control it, we collapse. In either of those conditions, we lose contact with the dynamic aliveness of our experience and of what is going on. And we notice in the moments when we don't do that, when we don't try and control it, when we're not trying to fix it, and whether it's sitting there with a simple breath as it flows in and out and we just let it be, or whether it's just noticing this and that and the other thing appearing in our mind. When it's unimpeded, there's a certain flow that's dynamic, that's actually quite creative when we're present. We can find a certain brightness or even brilliancy in it. It's at some level attractive and enthralling even, but it can also be rather unpredictable and therefore scary to us. It's like the nature of life's changing flow. Look how different it is now than it was this morning or it was yesterday or 10 years ago or 20 or 30. At some level, experience keeps changing. And it's not predictable. Who would have known 10 years ago that you were going to end up here today having to listen to me, me having to speak to you? Who would have predicted that? I mean, anyone who did is probably make a living out of that gift. But probably no one did. And yet somehow it came to be like this. And while at one level that's fascinating and remarkable, At another level, it's really scary because what it says to us is we don't know what's going to happen next. And we don't. The only thing we know with any certainty in life, the only one thing we know with certainty, and we would wish things to be certain so we could feel safe and it could be predictable. Our life could be predictable if things were certain, wouldn't it? If we knew what was going to happen. That would make us feel better. Or so we like to think. We spend a lot of time trying to get things certain and fix and predict them from thinking about them. But you know, the only thing that's actually certain, that we can really be certain about, is the fact that one day we will die and we don't know when that will be. That certainty does not produce the calm we would hope for, for most of us. It does not make us feel, ah, now I know what's going to happen. Great. No, it produces quite the opposite. It's like, ah, what am I going to do about this? But, There isn't anything we can do about it. It's like that. This is life. And if we can allow ourselves to feel and really acknowledge that, the fact of death, that life arising in the form that we are in through birth concludes in this form through death. 
actually bringing that to mind, reflecting on it, contemplating it, is regarded as something really important and powerful. Because it actually, if we let ourselves not shrink away from it, it actually brings forth the aliveness of our condition. Anyone who's been in a moment of danger knows how alive one feels in that moment. How time slows down. How actually there's an incredible detail in what goes on. When we're really present in a moment of danger, it's like we see each moment unfold as if it was in slow motion because of the quality of our attention. And then in that moment of danger and because we're here having survived it, we realize how precious and how fragile our life is. I was speaking some time ago with a friend who just described walking out of one room into another in a building. And having walked out of that building, two seconds later, hearing this crash and this big, heavy stone ceiling just fell in into the room that this person was in. And just that sense of, wow, if I'd been there three seconds longer, gone. And, and how alive we feel if we actually let that in, if we notice that. Because contemplating our death isn't it actually something that need make us feel gloomy or depressed? It actually has the power, the capacity to bring us more in contact with the fact that we are alive because we feel how precious it is. It's only precious, it seems, because it's temporary. We wouldn't be so concerned about it if we were really going to live forever. We'd be like, fine, no problem, what can harm me? It's as though sort of somehow being eternal would be a loss. If our life was forever, it wouldn't have the preciousness that it has. If anything was forever, it wouldn't really touch our heart. It's the fact that things are alive and the fact that they change and fade away. Like a, like a flower in a restaurant. If you ever go into restaurants and other places, there can be these beautiful flowers sitting on the table. And it looks like a flower. It looks like a really beautiful flower. But it's not a flower. And you can't tell by looking at it. Because it's a very good reproduction. Sometimes they even put perfume in them to really fool you. But actually, at some level, one knows this isn't real because there's nothing dead on it. There's nothing dying. There's nothing on the way out. And the beauty of a flower is that it's just for a little while and then it fades away. There's a a little sign at uh, Chithurst, one of the uh, Buddhist monasteries in England, in Sussex, and uh, it really touches me. It says, if I can remember, and speaking to this point, The cherry blossoms cover the hillsides for just a few days. Any longer, and we would not love them so. That's not precise, but that's the sentiment. And then under it is a single date and a name, little Sammy. And the sense of that that preciousness of a life that was just for one day, that that evokes, that it's not any less for having just been one day. In fact, it's more precious. Our lives are not less precious for being 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, whatever they are, but more precious for that. And actually being in touch with it. Being in touch with that has a powerful effect on the heart and on the mind. And actually to recognize not just our life, but this moment is as it is only once. Never before has this group of people sat in this configuration in this way. 
And never again will we be here in exactly the circumstance and condition. When we come in later, it will be different already. Every breath is unique, is particular. And somehow we forget that. And a certain boredom or disenchantment arises with our life because we we lose touch with its preciousness, with its uniqueness. And yet from that place of simple presence, what we can notice, what we can begin to sense is that the quality of the connection that we make with our experience, the openness, the freshness, the interest that we bring to it, actually transforms what might be kind of everyday and ordinary into something remarkable, something that sparkles with life. That vibrates, that is dynamic. Opening to aliveness, to see the flow of life move through. What makes this possible? What makes this possible? When we speak in spiritual teachings about awakening, we're speaking of an understanding in which what we have understood or believed to be so is seen not to be. An understanding in which the way we conceive of ourselves is somehow separate and removed, cut off from and apart from the rest of life, is recognized as not having any inherent truth to it. The nature of life is not like that. And that as we come to rest as we release the compulsive habits of grasping and pushing away, of resisting or manipulating our experience, as we come to rest in the simplicity and the immediacy of our lives, of life as it is unfolding, moment by moment, breath by breath, coming to rest in that, we can start to sense that there is a twin dimensionality to what is revealed, to what is unfolding. And there is the movement and the flow and the flux of life. And it pours through, it seems. It pours irresistibly and unstoppably through the space of this moment in which it's happening, through the conscious presence that knows it, that isn't actually going anywhere or moving that isn't actually affected by it and yet isn't separate from it either. But there is more to be recognized and understood than what appears on the surface of our experience. And the only way, however, to understand, to recognize that is to enter wholeheartedly into the experience without taking hold of it, without using what is happening to somehow create a story about who I am or who you are or what this world is. Because in those stories we become removed from the actuality. In our thinking about, we keep reinforcing a position that is not true a position that is based on the conception that I and you are separate from each other, from the world, from life, from the very principle of aliveness itself. And being separate from it 
subject to dropping out of it through death into non-aliveness. The flow of life, the flow of experience, reveals by the fact that it is revealed. By the fact that it is revealed, it reveals something. Something which isn't something. And here which is awake. And in that condition of awakeness is intelligent. And benevolent. Expresses itself as wisdom and compassion. What we could call the awakened mind. That which is the foundation of existence. Not bound to nor separate from the movement of life and aliveness. The simple presence of what is. The simple presence of truth. That is nothing special or different or other than ordinary. And yet perhaps all the more elusive because of that. And yet at the same time apparent. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.